Uh, good evening. Thank you for bearing with us. We like to, you know, get everyone in who wants to see it, and I'm amazed by how many of you actually do go to hear. Um, <coughs> our guest tonight is the Winton Professor of Public Engagement, Public Understanding and Risk, a Fellow of Churchill College, and the Chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, where he works to improve the way in which risk and statistical evidence are taught and discussed in society. And looking at the numbers here, I can say he's also a firm festival favourite. So uh, please give a warm welcome to uh, Dr. David Spiegelholzer. Thank you. Well, um, thank you. Uh, thank you all very much for turning out on such a cold evening. Although, if your house is anything like mine, you'd come out just to get warm as well. So maybe that's why you're all here. And you're certainly, you're on time. This is why I give my part 1B statistics lectures, as, you know, as in, uh, some of you might know. And uh, as I say, you look a lot more awake and a lot more punctual than the usual <laughs> mob I have in front of me of students. Okay, so um, I'm going to give a talk about numbers in the news, whether we can trust what we hear on the media when it comes to statistics. And um, it's going to be, I mean, uh, I, I do apologise if you've heard, some of you might have heard some of the jokes before, seen some of the slides, but um, I hope that it'll be both sort of entertaining and kind of useful. Because uh, you know, I genuinely feel that this is a, a really important time for trustworthiness of the information we hear. So I won't talk about fake news and all that kind of stuff, but we know, we know that the problems that we face in modern society, and, uh, and this is about trying to do something about it. I should also say, you know, my new title is Chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, and that again is a philanthropic uh, donation from David Harding of Winton Capital Management. He's given us a trough load of money, so now it's not just me, uh, we've got eight of us, including in the maths department, now he's got four full-time psychologists working there. Um, not to study the mathematicians. I always say, you know, if, if we're going to do that, we'd need at least 12, you know, to do that. Now, to, um, uh, to, to work on the sort of stuff I'm going to be talking about. Okay, so to start, numbers are often used to persuade rather than inform, unfortunately. I believe in, you know, good information, but they're used to persuade. And, yeah, yeah, you knew that was going to come up. Let's get it over with. 350 million quid on the side of the bus making numbers look large or small. Actually, I can, even if you believe that 350 million, I can still make that look quite small. Um, if, you, if you say, well, 350 million quid a week, that's 50 million quid a day, divide it by 70 million, that's 80p. A packet of crisps a day each to eat. Oh, who cares? Anyway, so, um, and uh, the other side it was just as responsible for using statistics that are packaged in a particular way to, to uh, make us feel in a certain way, because numbers don't speak for themselves. I'm going to talk all the time, everything I'm talking about is telling stories with numbers. And the way that people manage to manipulate our emotions by the imagery, by the units, by the comparators in numbers. Numbers do not speak for themselves. People think of numbers as these cold, hard facts. Well, in a sense they are, but by the time we've heard them, they're not like that. We respond to them emotionally. And that's why now I work with psychologists all the time, because I, you need to understand how people respond to, to information. Now, my guru on all of this is, is Baroness Honora O'Neill, who many of you might have seen talk. She is completely wonderful. You know, she's, um, you know, <laughs> she's a, a, a scholar of Kant, um, and she studies trust. And she, if you, I don't like TED Talks on the whole. They just fill up with third-rate psychology. And, oh, it's ghastly. Anyway, but except her TED Talk, really must see it, nine minutes, TED Talk, in which she does, she gets in Kant, 
trust and jokes. She's just brilliant. Anyway, she talks about what is trust, who should we trust? She really studied who should we trust, and she likes her rules of three. We're going to keep, do two rules of three this evening. The only thing is you have to remember anything, remember these. Okay, she said we should trust people who are, first of all, competent. That's the first thing we should look out for, be competent. So I'm going to apply her criteria to a, uh, a, a, a numbers in the news, and I'm going to pick one particular source, and just by chance I'm going to pick Fox News. I mean, why, I mean, why not? Just, just at random, just at random. So competence. So that's Fox News's idea of a pie chart. <laughs> quite quick, quite quick. Come on, bit faster. For my 14-year-old audiences, get the get it faster than that. No, that is not a good pie chart. Okay, they should add up to 100 for those who haven't seen them for a while. So, um, okay, so that's that's her first criteria. Her second criteria is honesty. Okay, so are Fox News honest with their numbers? So. This is Fox News's way of comparing 6 million with 7 million <laughs> when they want to make the difference look big. And it's the, again, us, my school audience used to just laugh at this because you know, it's the oldest trick in the book to cut the axis to make the difference look big. Naughty, very naughty. And in fact, they got told off for this. They got called out on, on the internet. And they said, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. And they corrected it. They actually put up a new graph, the correct, you know, graph bar chart. And they said, oh, well, fine. Maybe they did make a mistake. But actually, well, if you look at the third criteria of Honora Neal, it's reliability. Fox News are reliable. They always produce graphs like this <laughs> when they want to make the, the difference look big, when it's something the Democrats have done, and they want to make the difference look big. So, so uh, they, uh, they're very reliable, but on, not honest and incompetent. So um, while we're on pie charts, pie, 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 actually I hate pie charts, I loathe them, but they do provide some of the best jokes. That's not a bad pie chart, <laughs> but it's not great. You feel they're nearly there, you know, four out of 10, but not quite there on what a pie chart manages. That's a good one. That's, a, that's what happens when, when a scientist gets hold of software. <laughs> and, and so um, I don't like pie charts, they're awful. And uh, so while we're on just, you know, let's get the crummy graphics over with. And what I want is from you is an explanation of that chart. <laughs> Have you any idea what that is doing? Again, someone has got hold of some software and put some numbers in and a graph's come out and we haven't got a clue what it means, but never mind. Okay, so that's the first lack of trust one should have is the basic competence of some of the people who go, and we're going to see some other incompetence on this trip. It's a bit shocking. I think I'll almost rather be manipulated than that incompetence. Okay, so why might we doubt the science and numbers what we, that we read? So I, I, what I think is very important is to understand what I call the pipeline by which we hear information. You know, as the public, when we turn on the radio, when we read the newspapers, when we open up the internet, go on Facebook, when we hear news about numbers and statistics, why are we hearing it? Where's it come from? You know, scientists say a new study does, all this sort of stuff. We've got to think of the path by which we hear about these things, because it's very important to work out where all the problems occur in that path. We can't, we can't just blame the media. That, that is really inadequate. That's what I, one of my main themes of my talk is to say, oh, the media are hopeless. No, actually, many of the journalists are really good. The problem is often not in the journalists. And so that's what I want to say. Okay, so first of all, we got the sources of the data. So we might have academics doing research or surveys being done that's been commissioned. So they're the people actually doing the work, collecting the data. 
but we don't actually have access to that. It's got to be filtered through scientific publications or, or the people who commissioned the work, the policy makers, the NGO, whoever really wanted that statistic to be seen. And unless, but unless we're scientists reading the, 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 the journals, whatever, we don't see that either. We don't see that. What, this is again filtered through their press offices or their comms departments who are deciding what is interesting enough for us to see, that they want us to see, and as I'm gonna show, tarting it up a bit to make it be more interesting. But we don't even see that because we don't see the press releases. It's got to go then into the media, the traditional and online media, and something, a step I haven't also actually I should put in there, and then somebody else, the journalist then will write the article, but somebody else will put the headline on the article, a sub-editor will put the headline on the article, and then eventually we might see it. Now, you know, uh, through all this pipeline, the filters occur, and, 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 and this is the reason why by the time it gets to us, we see such rubbish, we see such drivel. In fact, I got a, you know, I got a, <laughs> you know, Groucho Marx's comment that um, he wouldn't join any club that would have him as a member, which is his sort of paradoxical comment. My paradoxical comment is that the very fact that I'm hearing a health story in the news is reason to disbelieve it. <laughs> so the very, as soon as somebody comes on the Today program saying, oh, well, the scientists say, I go, blah, 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 but I'm not listening, not listening, because the fact that I'm hearing it almost certainly means it's wrong because it's gone through all these filters being exaggerated and being selected. Okay, so that's a rather cynical view. Let's see how this works. Sometimes even the scientists can be the problem. So I, I'm starting off by blaming scientists sometimes. Okay, here's a graph that was in a recent scientific paper from a few months ago. And what this shows is reaction time. In other words, down here is better. So the dip, this is the best performance here. And this is your daily dose of what I might call a food supplement you might guess what it might be, but I'm not going to say what it is. Well, actually, I will say. What is it? It's actually da daily alcohol use in grams. So this is, this is it's on the log scale. This is really shoveling it down. This is trough loads of the stuff. This is 16 grams. This is the current, this is two, two units a day. So this is the current government guideline. And this is a lot less, and that's um, just having a tiny bit. Okay, so what if we saw that graph and we had to conclude, what might you, and this is based on a really good study, uh, the biobank data, 16,000 people, really good data. Um, what, what might we conclude? We might conclude that drinking 16 grams a day, two units, the current guidelines, is best for cognitive performance. Or at least that gives the best cognitive performance, best reaction time, is when you drink the government, the current guidelines. They're optimum. So the guideline is you should drink it. No, that's, that's not what the guideline is. The guideline says you shouldn't drink more than that. And even very high alcohol consumption, it still seems to be better than not <laughs> drinking at all. Even the people who are really shoveling it down in trough loads are still doing better than the ones who don't drink. So um, that's what we might conclude. Yeah, you don't find that. The, uh, we, we, if we look at the actual paper that appeared in the Journal of Public Health, a very respectable journal completed by Oxford, what did they conclude? They concluded that, oh, oh, what's happened to the top of my slide? Um, conclusion, consuming more than one standard unit of alcohol per day is detrimental to cognitive performance. It's more pronounced in older populations. So they said more than one unit is detrimental. Well, now, if you, the current guidelines are 16 grams a day, two units. And our findings suggest that to preserve cognitive performance, 10 grams a day is a more appropriate upper limit. This would translate to not more than one standard unit of alcohol each day. 
These are the direct opposite of what their data show. There's no justification for their conclusions in the abstract in the paper. Because the minimum is at two units. One unit's up here, and this is two units. So you have two people who drink more than that, and yet they're saying we should remove, take the guidelines down there. And their reasoning was that at, at this point, the curve starts flattening off. So the alcohol must be harming them. Uh, no. Well, I, I, I wrote a complaint about this, and it got published. And I said, but this is like saying, if you're driving a car forward, it's beneficial. And if you're going backwards, it's really harmful. And what they're saying is that if you start putting the brakes on, you're caught, you're trampled. I said, no, it's just less good. Anyway, never mind. But that was, um, that was a, a journal, that was in a journal, published. What happens in the sun? One pint a day can give you dementia. <laughs> So that was the son's response to that, which is, was so not what the data shows. <laughs> One pint a day gave you the best performance. Anyway, never mind. A daily, daily male drinking any more than a third of a pint of beer a day impairs people's response time study findings. No, it didn't find that. But that's what the scientists said it found. So you can see these problems. This is, you know, you can't blame the journalists for this. This was the scientists' fault just recently. Okay, let's go on to the next phase, the press release. The press is, is something, is a fascinating thing, the press releases. And I, I get press releases because I'm part of the Science Media Centre circulation. So we get set press releases before the, under embargo, before the study is published, which is really good because it means you can get your criticisms in early. You can really hammer, we'll see an example of that later. You can really put the boot in before they're public because it's too late otherwise. Okay, so here's a, here's a nice study. Socioeconomic position and the risk of brain tumour, a Swedish national population-based cohort study. Dull. Dull, dull, dull. You know, typical Scandinavian study, four million people, boring. Anyway, so, um, fine, fine. And they concluded, we observed consistent associations between higher socioeconomic position and higher risk of glioma. Um, richer men got more brain tumours, slightly more. And they said, oh, this could be because richer people have got better health care, more likely to be diagnosed. So it could just be an artefact. So that was the thing. So that's what they said in the paper. <laughs> well, the press, the press officers thought this wasn't quite interesting enough, so they, <laughs> so they declared that high levels of education linked to heightened risk, brain tumour risk, which is not what the study was about, but never mind. That's a better, it's a better story. And I think you can guess what's going to happen. By the time it gets to the Daily Mirror, we get why going to university increases the risk of getting a brain tumour. Don't tell your kids. Yeah, this is really, you know, this is really frightening. It's all that learning, you know, all that brain throbbing away. Really dangerous. Absolute nonsense. Again, the actual story, the journal, the, the bit wasn't too bad, but the journalism, given the press release. But the sub-editor stuck this headline on. You know, suggesting causation, all those things. Correlation's not causation. Don't even have to mention it. Yeah. So there's masses of these. The problem is pressing. Here's another one. Why Marmite could prevent miscarriages and birth defects? Well, why? Well, actually, no, it can't. But never mind. And there's no evidence it can. But or possibly if you're a genetically modified mouse. This was a study in Australia, extremely good, careful study in the New England Journal of Medicine, a really competent study, which we got in the hands of a rogue press officer who has extraordinary press release for how this was going to solve miscarriage problems. It, uh, it was about, it, what they did was um, induce, um, by genetically modifying mice, uh, they induced a, um, a particular um, uh, condition which led mice to have a, um, a 
and miscarriages, and then they gave them lots of vitamin D2 and, uh, and that sulfur, which is extraordinary, really powerful. So it might be on beetles in, in Marmite, um, but it was on mice, and it only is to do with miscarriages that are due to a genetic defect. It's actually a, a small minority of miscarriages. So, and, and in the press release, didn't mention the word mouse. <laughs> it did say animal model, didn't once mention the word mouse. So um, the importance of framing, the, way, the way, uh, press officers can be very clever, very clever. Here's another, here's another really boring, you might have, I hope you haven't seen this one before, but this is another dull, worthy but dull studies. I love them. Genome-wide association study, blah, blah, blah. 10% of people have a genetic variant which reduces the risk of high blood pressure. Now, that's a positively framed message, therefore boring, because nobody likes good news. Some people have got a gene that reduces, uh, reduces the risk of high blood pressure. So a brilliant press officer got hold of that, because this didn't get any coverage, and turned it into a story in which nine in 10 people carry a gene which increases the chance of high blood pressure. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? You just switch it round into a bad news story. Big coverage all around the world, promotion for the press officer. It's, you've got to admire it, really. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. Anyway, but it's outrageous. You know, this is purely, you see numbers not speaking for themselves? By changing from a positive to a negative frame, you can change your emotional response to the, to the, um, to the question. Okay, and now press releases are being researched. There's a study, the association between exaggeration in health-related sciences and academic press releases. And what they found is that they looked at 462 press releases from UK universities 40% had exaggerated advice, exaggerated causal claims, exaggerated inference from animals. So the press release was making the exaggeration. And what they concluded is that the majority of the exaggerations in the, in the final media were already in the press release. So again, it wasn't the fault of the journalists then. Because they, partly because they don't go back to the original study. Some of them, they, you know, they're in a big rush, it's a shame. But they, um, you know, they should go back to the original study really. So not, it's not the journalist's fault. Okay, so um, you've got all this, through this whole trail, you've got all these business, what you might call questionable research practices, questionable interpretation and communication practices. Now, you may want to just take a, a photograph of that. This is all the stuff. You know, I won't go through all these, but this is just the tricks that people do. You know, this is, you know, what, this is what people get up to. You only pick the most newsworthy stories. Doesn't matter about the quality. Never report uncertainties or context. Suggest a cause when only an association. Exaggerate the relevance, even if it's not only on mice. Claim that this means you should reduce the alcohol guidelines. Relative and not absolute risk. Positive negative framing. Conflict of interest. Who's, who, who produces this? Use a sexy but misleading graphic. Write a crappy headline. So I, I've already illustrated a lot of those, and I'll, I'll work through them, but, you know, I'll show others. But that's a sort of list of what goes on, a very useful t checklist to see what is it, what's being done to me, this story. And usually on any story here, you can pick about four of those that's going on. Okay, so there's a crucial fact. The person who writes the article generally has no control over the headline. They've gone home by the time the sub-editor sticks the headline in. And, and this can cause a lot of problems, I think, because it means that these headlines can often bear no resemblance to the story underneath. Um, the, this is like, this isn't interesting, this is in the Times recently, I think, um, half of motor penalties are overturned. No, they're not. Half of motor penalties that are go to appeal are overturned, not half of motor. So it's like a clear error, you know, it's just a misleading, completely wrong statement. 
This one I like. Over a third of bikers are killed on Kent roads. <laughs> My God! My God, I knew motorcycling was dangerous, but that really is... And then you realize, that, because the article's not about, but uh, no, no. If you read the article, it says that a third of people killed are bikers. But there is a difference. <laughs> you know, it's the difference between saying all popes are Catholic and saying all Catholics are popes. You know, there, there really is a difference, and they corrected it. Bikers involved one third of serious Kent road accidents. But you really wonder sometimes about the competency of who, people who write the headlines. Um, alcohol, back to alcohol again. Now, this was another, another study came out very recently, um, and this is to do with drinking in pregnancy, which is a, you know, a controversial issue. And the current government guidelines is that on, uh, on a precautionary basis, women should not drink in pregnancy. It's been completely reasonable. But the government admits, and this reinforced the fact that there is no good evidence that drinking a little bit of alcohol, and it's up to two glasses of wine a week, actually causes any harm. It's quite difficult to detect, but there's no good evidence that it actually does harm. So the, the blah, 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 and this is what they said. They said, um, uh, but it's quite reasonable to advise people to steer clear on a precautionary basis. Better to be safe than sorry. But, you know, you shouldn't, if you do have a, a, you know, a glass of wine or thing, don't panic. You, you, you know, there's no evidence it's actually going to harm you, baby. Okay, so this good headline from the BBC, weak evidence that light alcohol use is, preg is pregnancy. Good headline from the Guardian, little evidence that light drinking in pregnancy is harmful, say experts. Then, on the front page of the Times, we get light drinking does no harm in pregnancy. Spot the difference? There's a huge difference between saying there's no good evidence that it causes harm to saying there is evidence it doesn't cause harm. It's a massive difference between that. Ah, I bet that headline writer knew that. Now, th there's a couple of other things wrong with that, that's a bit bad about the headline. The fact that it's wrong. It's in quotes. It sort of suggests somebody might have said it. Don't you know when you see a quote, you sort of think somebody might... Nobody said that. Nobody thought it. Nobody said that that to the journalist. So it's a completely fictitious quote that was made up to sell the story. The only person quoted in this article is me. So <laughs> that, I, was, I was a bit grumpy about that because it looks like I said that and nobody did. I certainly didn't think that at all. And it's really clear that that's not the message. Anyway, the Times is on the front page. got bombarded with complaints from me, from everybody else. And um, if so, and then people complained to actually the Press Standards Organization. And uh, this was a, a formal complaint was put in, and the complaint was upheld, but the headline was misleading. Um, you know, but they said they didn't have to do anything because the newspaper had promptly published a sufficiently prominent clarification. Yeah, well, was it prominent? It was a week later on page 34, in a, down in the corner somewhere. That was it. That was their apology for getting a hopelessly misleading headline on the front page. So that, that was the Times. That's absolutely outrageous, completely un unacceptable. So um, can we do better? Can we improve what's, what's done? I mean, the, the situation at the moment is not good. It's really not good at all. Um, it makes me rather scared. I mean, it, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to go into cynicism, but actually skepticism is quite a good so can we do better? Let's go back to a Nora Neal on trust. Because basically we're talking about trust. Can we trust what we hear? Can we trust numbers? Terribly important in our society today, trust and numbers. And a Nora Neal, again, she's great. Remember, remember what she said about who you might trust? She also says that we as you know, experts or scientists or anything, we shouldn't aim to be trusted. 
you know, corporations want to be trusted, governments want to be trusted, everyone wants to be trusted. No, she says that was the wrong thing to do. Trust is something that's offered up to you. You've got to earn it. You cannot, you know, tell people to trust you. She says you've got to demonstrate trustworthiness. And you will notice, you might notice in the discourse about trust in society now, the word trust is being replaced by trustworthiness in a lot of agencies. The Office of National Statistics now, the, um, uh, the, the main stats regulator that oversees the Office of National Statistics, their primary objective is, to, is trustworthiness. It's not to be trusted, it's to demonstrate trustworthiness. So this is, I think it's, it's very clever. It's, it's, you know, I don't think it's that subtle a distinction because that is within our control to demonstrate trustworthiness. But people, you can't just say, oh, you know, again, tell people to trust you. People must be able to assess that trustworthiness, which means being open and being honest and actually being, making yourself somewhat vulnerable. You have to be, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't uh, essentially what she's saying, you shouldn't fight um, fake claims and exaggerated claims by being even more fake and exaggerated. We should have the humility to actually open up and allow people to see our working. So, okay, here's our other three. Remember the three, you should trust people who are competent, honest, and reliable. You should look for information. If you want to be trustworthy, your information, what you tell people, should be accessible, usable, and accessible. Great. Three. You know, if you only take one thing home, remember those three. Accessible. So it means that people should be able to get the information, they should be able to understand it, and they should be able to check it. She could have said that as well, but never mind. Just saying both. So um, that I, I just I have that in my head now. Just ram it in. It's got to people be able to get it. They've got to understand it and they've got to be able to check it to see whether how good it is. So these are the things to, to demonstrate. And she says, you know, okay, so how do we go about doing that? The first thing is to do improve the quality of the stuff we hear and also improve the capacity for calling out bad stuff. So we've got to improve the stuff going through the pipeline, but we need to improve the capacity of everyone, everyone out there, both professionals and kids and adults, and to actually spot the rubbish and complain about it. So it's that two-way process to, to get better stuff and to, and to be checking it all the time. Okay, so those are the two things I want to concentrate on. Improving the quality of what we, what's published. I, I won't you know, go into all the details. There's a, a lot of stuff being going on now about improving the quality of science, improving um, you know, the reliability of what appears in the literature, and so on. And I won't talk about it. That's another whole issue to talk about. Um, just want to say that this is of you know, great interest to me. And, 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 uh, and very important. Okay, improving the way numbers are communicated, um, the, the way it comes down the pathway. You know, I think she, she and others have mentioned, there's a sort of list here which I've put together from what many people have said. The first thing is you've got to admit uncertainty. We, we can't, as I said, we can't counter, uh, you know, Trump-like claims, um, which he just pulls out the air, with, with more overclaims. We've got, to, we've got to have honesty and, and integrity, and that means admitting uncertainty. We've got, to, we've got to work with our press officers and comms team and understand the audiences, listen to the audiences. We've got to know about communication, and that's what I work on now. That's why I'm now only working on communication. We've got to be impartial. We shouldn't be trying to manipulate people's feelings. We've got to be able to tell it as it is. But we should work with the BBC, training, education, and et cetera, et cetera. And this is the crucial. We've got to tell better stories. It's no good being boring. You know, being honest and uncertain, if nobody takes any notice of you. So the, it seems to me the crucial thing now, and that is we got, we got a whole research program now being funded on, by Wincombe on how can we communicate uncertainty without losing trust and credibility. 
which has to still be interesting. So I'd like to just talk about some of those things. First of all, uncertainty. Uh, people are not good at admitting uncertainty. Nobody likes admitting it. Okay, here's a nice story. This is from January, a couple of months ago. UK unemployment falls to 1.44 million. UK unemployment fell by 3,000 to 1.44 million in the three months to November. Official figures show. BBC said that must be a fact. Do you think it's a fact? I wonder what the, you know, what would you do? What would, I mean, the first thing I would train people to do, you know, what, what about that 3,000? Do you believe it was 3,000? I wonder what the margin of error is on that 3,000. Shall we see? Shall we try to find the margin? Of, you've got to work damn hard to find the margin of error on that 3,000. It's not in that article at all. It's not in the BBC. If you go back onto the ONS website, and, uh, and, and that's the table of contents. Anything there about uncertainty, margins of error? No. You realize then that it probably goes in here, quality and methodology. So you click on that, and you get a slab of text, and then you find a, a great big paragraph like that, and you read that paragraph, and eventually you see that this has got a margin of error of plus or minus 77,000. <laughs> it might have gone up, it might have gone down. 50-50, essentially. No idea whether it's gone up or gone down. Why didn't the BBC see? Oh, and S have got no idea whether unemployment has gone up or gone down. No, they didn't say that. I don't know why. I think that would make a great story. Much more interesting than it's gone up by a little bit. It's hopeless. I wouldn't say they've got no idea. It hasn't changed by that much. But that's the margin of error, because unemployment is it's not based on a claimant count. It's based on a labor force survey. So it's all 130,000. Anyway, it's... um. Yeah, so, but nobody reports that, which I think is outrageous, actually, because we get a completely, people write whole articles about changes in unemployment when actually, you know, we don't know whether it's changed or not, uh, on a short-term basis. So that's pretty outrageous, and, and that's what happens. So here's another one. Okay, so, I mean, don't you just have to click on that one? I mean, really, I mean, I love these headlines. I mean, who wouldn't click on that? People who write the headlines know what they're doing. They want you to read the story. They want you to click. That's their job. So who would want to click on that story? Of course you do. Why binge watching a TV box set could kill you? So the, the, the point about this little story is not just to show another stupid headline, but to show this idea of how we can put a story in perspective by expressing the numbers in a different way. Because if you read the article there, it says that oh, watching five hours of television a night more than doubles your risk of a pulmonary embolism. <gasps> more than doubles your risk. That must be important. Well, let's see. Let's see. And you have to, again, work damn hard to find this information. You have to go back to the original paper, and you find it, which is based in Japan, and you find out that people... Um, the, uh, hang on, no, I want to go back. People having more than five hours of television, watching more than five hours of television a night, there's 13 pulmonary embolisms out of 160,000 patient years. And this means that even if the effect was true and causal, you'd have to watch more than five hours a night for 12,000 years <laughs> to expect to get your pulmonary embolism. Which I always think, by that time, it'd probably be, be a relief. So, <laughs> so it puts it in perspective. Puts them in, you know, how you, big numbers and small numbers, very difficult to interpret. You tell a story in a different way, of course, you demolish the story completely. And that's the increased risk. So calling out bad practice, it seems to me really important that we all have a responsibility to point out when there's stuff that isn't, isn't right. So um, 
you know, there's all sorts of people who can do this. You've got independent fact checkers like Full Fact and regulators who are checking on this stuff. You've got the science community commentating. But you've also got individual members of the public who can spot stuff and complain. And especially using social media, you can identify very quickly a nonsense story and, and, and publicize it. So I think it's all, and of course, as we go to increasing attempts by social media companies, Facebook and Google, et cetera, to identify fake stories and, and label them as such. So it's, it's multiple responsibilities. So um, this is just a quick list again. I don't want to put up lots of boring lists, checklists, but if you do, if you, you know, we're developing courses on this kind of stuff, other people have done this, what questions would, should you want to ask? And I'm trying to just break it up into three basic questions. Tim Harford did a nice little list of this recently, on more or less. You should ask questions about the research. In other words, how trustworthy is the number? What's known as internal validity? It, does the number actually mean what it says? You know, is this a randomized trial? Is this, um, you know, is there a proper control group, et cetera, et cetera? So purely on its own merits, is that number reliable? Then about the interpretation, the conclusions drawn. This is the external validity. If it's just on mice, it might be a perfectly reasonable number, but not if you start applying it to people. If it's on you know, old people, you can't just, in one country, you can't necessarily say it'll apply to the whole world. So that's about the generalizations, and that's all to do with causation and correlation, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll come to that. And then questions about the communication, and this is, can we trust actually the source and what we're being told? The crucial question there is, what are we not being told? How many things did they test before they reported this, this study, this, this, this outcome? How is it being spun? And this is more detect, real detect, all these are actually detective work. But a lot of it is what is not, what the, what's not in the paper. So this is really quite subtle and um, a terribly important to, to try to do. Okay, so um, this is the sort of question to ask when you get this sort of story, which do you remember, the, you know, the, the killer burnt toast story from earlier this uh, last year, January, last January. This is burnt crispy roast potatoes, a potential cancer risk. <gasps> well, were they a potential cancer risk? This is because of acrylamide. And acrylamide forms, if you burn, um, uh, you get burnt on burnt toast and or on burnt roast potatoes. Now, acrylamide at really high doses is, is, can cause cancer, industrial level exposures. However, is that actually, is it a cancer, a real cancer risk? We wrote a blog on this. Toast, this is real toast. It was harmed in the making of this blog. <laughs> so, how dense is it? So, <laughs> we had the guy at home burning the toast and taking a picture of it and sending it. Anyway. So we wrote this blog. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we wrote the blog on the 22nd. It was the day before the news was released because we got it under embargo, realized it was a rubbish story, and took it apart in this blog and before the story actually came out and sent this to journalists. They were ready for it. So it meant that by 7 o'clock the next morning, I was on the Today program rubbishing the story even before they got a chance to, <laughs> to announce the story. <laughs> And I was on TV and this sort of stuff. And basically, we, you know, we worked out that adults with the highest consumption of acrylamide, because people know how much acrylamide people have, could consume 160 times as much and still only be at a level that toxicology claims are unlikely to cause tumors in mice. So that's, um, that's about 10 loaves of burnt toast a day, <laughs> and you should still be all right. And the point is that people have done lots of studies and haven't found any association between cancer and the amount of burnt toast or acrylamide you eat. So in other words, acrylamide it could be hazardous at very high doses, but at the doses we get, there's no evidence it causes cancer. So this is a really you know, silly campaign that I think brings sort of public health advice into disrepute. Um, so it's a 
Hellions of the Ninth Order. Um, and actually, this is on notice the 23rd at 11.15. By 11.15 in the morning, the story was essentially demolished and rubbish. So we took it apart. It wasn't just us taking it apart. But this is in the Daily Mail. They're saying, don't, you don't have to worry about it. They burnt the place. But, you know, it went around the world. And, you know, I've got coverage in all around the world about the dangers of burnt paper. So no reason to worry, in fact. So that was um, a bit of a silly story. Um, but it, it, you know, it needs scrutiny. It needs, and uh, just by looking at asking these basic questions, you can um, answer this. Okay, helping people critique what they hear. I, I just want to talk you know, briefly about some of the work, amazing work that's going on. Because the point is, you, me, we're too old. It's kids who've got to learn this stuff. School students should be learning. They're the one being bombarded in social media about these claims, you know, all stuff coming in. And they, they're the ones who need to know how to check the veracity of what they're being told. You know, and I think it's an essential part of, of schools' education, just like kids to be taught about you know, um, you know, uh, keeping themselves private on, on social media and what to give away and so on. Right, people need to know about that. They need to know about this as well. So there's lots of stuff going on. This is a colleague of mine, Sander van der Linden, Department of Psychology, written a lovely game. I played it, it's lovely. Because you, <laughs> you play the baddie. You do the cheating, lying, and intrigue. You, you're the one who, it says about, it's a game in which you try to promote fake news by buying Twitter followers, by exaggerating, by disguising who you, who you are, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone likes to play a baddie. Uh, BBC's got its own fake news game, and they're gonna be working with Sander on this. You know, there's a lot of work that BBC doing on going into schools and training people how to deal with it, um, to deal with this stuff. The, the, one of the places that's leading in this, quite surprisingly, is, is Uganda. Um, there's, uh, sponsored by Norwegian Health Agency, um, there's a whole lot of work now being done using comic books to teach kids about assessing claims about health treatments. Not on the internet, necessarily, but any claims they hear um, any claims they hear about, you know, like putting cow dung on a burn and it burn healed. So what questions to ask when people make health claims? Um, is that me? <laughs> oh, God, it's me. What's going on? Oh, dear. I, I There's a phone call coming in. Go away. Go away. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, and th th it was great. There's been a big a randomized trial they did in schools with 10,000 kids, and it appeared in The Lancet. So teaching school kids. And now the interesting thing about this is that I'm off to Uganda next week with BBC World Service because we're making a one-hour radio documentary on this kind of work. And I've already been to California to see how Californian kids are being taught to spot fake stories on the internet. And I'm going to compare the abilities of Californian kids and Ugandan kids in these schools to spot, spot fake claims. And it's, it's, it's the I think, unbelievably important issue in modern society that, um, to do this. Okay, so to conclude, um, yeah, to improve the numbers of the news, we need uh, you know, to completely stolen from a neuroneal, accessible, usable, and accessible evidence. Just the, that's the take-home message. And we need improved ability to assess the trustworthiness. And this means developing the skills of critiquing numerical claims. Okay, so that's my conclusions. Oh, I've got a few minutes left. Okay. Um, oh, and I actually you know that as well. I think we need stronger press regulation and media and Google and, and Facebook to take responsibility for what appears on there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff to clean, to make the media more reliable. Okay, um, in the last few minutes, I'd like to talk about what can go wrong. 
Um, and uh, uh, where I was the uh, subject of the, um, of the problem. Um, you may remember a couple of years ago I gave a talk here about my book, Set by Numbers, which I wrote. And uh, some of you may have been there. Uh, it's a good book. I think it's a good book. Took me a long time to write. Took a long time to choose the cover. I can't remember if I used this, this shade of this one before. I think I did in the last talk, so I do apologize. Because that was going to be the cover. And they said, <laughs> come on, come on. I know you've been sitting there a bit faster, a bit faster. That was going to be the cover. And they said, no, 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 no. W.H. Smiths won't, won't stock it if, if we have that as a cover. So that's a shame. So that's not the cover. That cover they dare not show. Anyway, um, so uh, when I was here before, I was talking about all this data about sexual behavior. And one of the statistics that pe everyone focused on, and which I was talking about, this is an infographic from the Wellcome Trust, shows the reduction in how often people have sex. So uh, this top one line, that's our one. This is in 1990, where opposite-sex couples, younger opposite-sex couples, were ha reported having sex a median of five times a month. And in 2000, that's our two, it's gone down to four times a month. And by 2010, that's all three, it's gone down to three times a month. Well, if, if we just carry on drawing this line down here, <laughs> this is very worrying for the future of the race by about 2030. Um, so lots of people said, you know, why is that happening? Everyone's interested. And, and this is the typical picture. It's the iPad. You know, it's the mobile phone. And in fact, the, um, the investigators do gen genuinely feel that it's because, or it could be largely because, there's an enormous amount of connectivity we've all got. You know, we've all got a phone, we've got, a, uh, we've got iPads, we're, we're constantly being distracted all the time. Don't know if that's something I try and quiet intimacy. And, uh, but, you know, I, 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 you know, when I've been talking about this, I, I, I blame the box set. And it's like, oh, no, can't come to bed, dear. I'm watching the latest Game of Thrones. So, so, <laughs> so I, th this is, anyway, I, I said all this at the, at the Hay Literary Festival when I was promoting my book. And um, it got some laughs like that. But a journalist in the audience didn't quite get the joke. Um, and the next day, in the Daily Telegraph, we had Britons are having less sex, <laughs> and Game of Thrones could be to blame, warns Cambridge professor. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, oh, God, no. And it gets worse. You know, um, this is said the trend in declining sex rates of the last 30 was very worrying. And, um, you know, if current trends continues, then we wouldn't be having any sex at all by 2030. <laughs> This is a, this is a joke. It's a joke. Please, it's a joke. Oh, no. And then I thought, oh, God, I was angry. And, but I thought, oh, stupid. You know, tomorrow's chip paper. I mean, who takes any notice of this rubbish? What I didn't realize is the way the modern media works. If one journalist writes a story connecting Game of Thrones, Sex, and Cambridge Professor, <laughs> every other media source just steals it. They don't bother to check it. All they have to do is say, the Daily Telegraph reported. So then we got on to Newsweek, the game is Game of Thrones ruining our sex lives. And then we got couples will stop having sex by 2030, the Dublin Live. Oh, this is my favorite. Sex will be obsolete by 2030 because of Netflix, calling one lone scientist. That's me. Anything. 40 years trying to build up this reputation bit by bit by bit, down the toilet in a week. And it just, it just goes on. It's German. Any excuse to show half-naked woman in, in Italian. And it's still going on. It was in, you know, Valentine's Day is repeated in the Daily Mirror again. So it goes on and on. But I, my faith in the media was, it was slightly restored by one journalist from um, um, Forbes magazine. Is Game of Thrones killing your sex life? And, um, and he drew this graph. You know, showing the 1990 linear graph and the, and the silly extrapolation downwards. 
Now, can you guess what he did? A genius. If you can extrapolate forward, you can extrapolate backward. <laughs> and in this straight, if we follow this straight line back to the zero, zero we estimate that people were having sex 200 times a month in the year zero. So I think it just goes to show you can prove anything with statistics. So thank you very much indeed. So I got time for there's some questions and there's some microphones around. So if you want to ask a question, um, turn around and find someone with a microphone and they'll come and give one to you. Anybody want to ask questions? Oh, oh yeah, I should point. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. No gentleman there. And um, is there somebody who, who's on here? One gentleman there. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, it's often seemed to me that a good thing to do with the test would be to say, okay, if you made a mistake on page one mm. and you used half the page, then we, once we're found to be wrong, we should put half the page on the front page yeah, yeah, yeah. to correct it yeah. rather than, uh, yeah. you know, just write it on page 17. I, I, it does seem fairly rational, doesn't it? But uh, I very a lot of people have suggested that kind of thing and they never will accept it. They say, oh, we, ha we got a, se we got a, se a, a section for corrections. That's where people know where to look for corrections and that's where we put all our corrections, regardless of how clever we think they are. And it, it seems to be a pathetic um, penalty for a completely fictitious quote, misleading quote on the front page. So I, I, I'm not sure what one can do about it. It just seems pathetic to that that is the penalty. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we should, you know, see what Ipso can do, but I don't think people will accept it. No, I, but I completely get the point. I think it's, the point is that it's scientists, scientists must take responsibility for the press releases. And uh, they should do, but they don't always. And they allow these sort of exaggerations to take place. So I think it's the scientists' fault. The press officers are doing their job. Their job is, is, is column inches to get coverage. So they're, they're left on their own devices. They, they will pump it up a bit and, and change the story. So I blame the scientists. You know, if, if, if something like this has happened, I blame the scientists for not keeping control of, about the promotion of their story. And I think that it's their job to do it. Yeah. But, you know, it's not just the, it's the institutions and the journals do it as well. I mean, not all. So a lot of press releases are fine. They, you know, there's some very good ones. But the press officers, you know, they're sort of, so, oh, we can't admit uncertainty or the doubts. We have to tell a good story. Whereas the journalists we talk to say, no, don't do that. Tell us the uncertainties. We can tell the story. We don't want all these exaggerations in the press release. Well, that's what they say anyway. But everyone's, you know, competing for interest. Everyone wants the story in there. So it seems to me, you know, it's no good us just saying, oh, it's got to be more reliable, it's got to admit the uncertainties, it's got to say that it's on mice and things like that. If that means it's all tedious and nobody ever sees any of it, we do want some science stories in the news. Um, so we just have to tell, identify the, you know, help them find the good ones and to promote those. I mean, there are lots of good science stories. 
and it's just a shame that so much of what appears is sort of third-rate epidemiology, what I call the cat's paws cancer of the schools. Oh, yes. Um, could you pass them? Anybody else before we get ready for the next one? It's got, it's got, it's got, it's got, you know, mixed, uh, you know, it's, it's a mixed framing, um, and, it, and it is an old trick to use relative risks for benefits and absolute risks for harms. Uh, so it's, a, it's an old trick, and um, and a little while ago, a third of all the papers did that in, in the literature. Um, now, I mean, it's outrageous, and uh, you know, I could give a whole talk on relative and absolute risks. We've got a whole app now that will do all that translation for you. The journalists know they should be using absolute risks. It's in the BBC guidelines. It's in journalists know they should be doing it. One of the problems, again, is the authors tend often not to give that information. They, rep they report relative risks um, because that's what comes out of the study data. So again, authors, scientists could do a lot better by making sure those absolute benefits are in actually in a part of the story. Because there are better ways to tell the story rather than, you know, halving and doubling and, you know, what does that mean? And to know how important things are, you do need the absolute risks. That's what we're after. But again, you know, it's what the media don't make that up. It's what they get past. Well, the pharmaceutical industry, the ABPI guidelines say you shouldn't use relative risks, that you should use absolute risks. Now, whether they do or not is another matter. Or at least you shouldn't just use relative risks. What, what, what do you mean? Oh, sorry, I didn't quite get the last point. So, so once I've once I've say read an article about relative risks or whatever, yeah, yeah. I then look up a statistic and go in my head. I've debunked that actually. This is how I view that yeah. issue now. And perhaps will we get to a future where when they're writing these articles, they want you to arrive at that same endpoint? They want you to debunk it. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they think. Well, basically, they just want to give you to you know fill up the page and, and you to read it and to click on the article. You know, I don't think they think. You know, that's why the same. You know, next day they might cover a have a story that's completely the opposite of what that was. You know, that's. Uh, I mean, I haven't gone into that, but one of the major problems is the fact that they're always just reporting what one study said, what one study says, rather than the combination of the evidence, which is what's really 
important because these are just these are stories. But I think the Google business is terribly important. You know, the fact that you can check on these scores. Um, you know, in a way, it should mean that equality improves. But very, you know, in most of the stuff I'm talking about, there's no single answer. You know, the benefits of staff improving or something like that. It depends on the source, what information you use. You know, something like GDP, there is an answer there. You know, although it's GDP is very uncertain as well. It's constantly being revised. So a lot of uncertainty about GDP as well. It's never reported on. Um, but, you know, for a lot of these health stuff, there's no answer. You can't look up the number and find it. It's all to do with, you know, how, which evidence are you using, which are you not using, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, I think the Google search thing is not necessarily going to be that, that helpful. You wonder something, well, we should identi identify the best source of information. I think that's, that's a trick question. Yeah, there's quite a lot. And, and of course, th what I haven't told you are the stories you're not hearing that we kept out of the news. Not just me, but everybody else. But the, the rubber, the, the, what can happen with this is that if you get them under an embargo, you can send in, say, be so critical that they don't appear. There's a lot of stories that don't appear. And because the, the typical ones now is, oh, you know, uh, things that give you autism, you know, massive studies that meant, you know, dangers of, you know, particular foods and, and pesticides. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of bad research, and um, and that can be blocked. And very often the journalist wants it to be blocked. They don't want to write it, but they know their editor might, would, you know, because it's a big story, will want them to write it. And so they use the negative quotes to say, I don't think we should have that in. So it's a sort of almost conspiracy between the critics and the journalists to keep it out of the paper. So, you know, you don't know what you're not seeing. <laughs> so, in other words, if you think what you see is bad, you should see the stuff you don't see. <laughs> Well, not the majority, but you can. A lot of stuff. I mean, and that, for example, that um, uh, the B2 mice one, Marmite. I think it was only one paper took that one. And there was a there's a there was a big thing, uh, you know, a, an actual um, uh, scam study on chocolate helps you lose weight, um, that many papers in Europe took, and almost nobody in the UK took. Um, a, a really rather fraudulent study on how uh, you know. Um, Pesticides were causing cancer in, in mice. Um, was again, we, it's a very bad study, and it hardly appeared in the UK literature, but, but huge in the French literature, in, in French media. So you get very different stories, and I, I don't know whether you know, it's responsible, but you know, actually, Britain is, a, I think, an island of rationality compared to what's going on in Italy and France and Hungary. The stuff that people believe and promote is extraordinarily anti-scientific, um, and I don't know if that's anything. With the fact that we do have there's some element, not of control, but of influence on what appears. I'll just finish. Yeah, um, I, I feel the same about that. P maybe not the same prominence, but same pay for a correction should be forced upon people. But the point I'd like this almost feels a bit before this era, but the MMR no, yeah, situation. Yeah. yeah feels a bit before social media, a bit before all yeah. this stuff. You know, what happened there that allowed that to take off like yeah. that? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting, and in fact, MMR is what provoked 
the Science Media Centre and things, and all these things, in sort of institutions in place to try to counter that, to give scientists a voice in that, because the MMR was disastrous. It was promoted by the, it was a bad paper, bad study, terrible editorial decision to include it. it was pr then it was press released by all three, so it was promoted deliberately, and yet it was really bad, really manipulative and bad. And, and certain newspapers took it up, Daily Mail and others, you know, would say, oh, this is really dangerous, it's really dangerous. Now, fortunately, that's sort of gone down in this country, but not in other countries. The vaccination rates are down, measles outbreaks in Italy and things like that. And there's the, what's happened, did people notice last year, what happens now is that you get measles outbreaks in Glastonbury? Because it's when all these 18-year-olds that their parents didn't vaccinate them <laughs> back in Wakefield's day, and they're all right for them, and they get together, and they give each other measles. So the, the outbreaks now in this country appear, and it happened in the summer at Hudson's. And it's that cohort of people who didn't get vaccinated. That's the problem. And it happened. So it, it was in a way, it was completely predictable, um, but it would have required real you know, insight to have predicted that this was going to happen 18 years later. Right, okay, I've got to stop now, so thank you very much indeed.